So we pick up this evening with the fourth oracle in the Balaam narrative, just briefly by way of review, since it's been a few weeks and some of you may have missed uh, the, the previous sermons or simply just forgotten in the elapsed time. Basically, in these few chapters, what has happened is that Balak, the king of Moab, has hired Balaam, who was basically what is known as a seer, pretty much a, a shaman, a pagan intermediary between this world and the spirit world, to curse Israel for him. But what happens in the big picture is that God actually overrules Balaam and does not allow him to curse Israel. In fact, he makes Balaam speak blessings over Israel as opposed to speaking curses over Israel. So that's pretty much what's going on in these chapters. There are four major oracles, four major speeches, if you will, that Balaam makes. And tonight we're looking at the fourth one, which is in the passage I just read for you, Numbers 24, 15 to 19. So briefly, just let me work through what's going on in this text and explain it. And then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to only make two main observations uh, about what's going on here, which will be applicable then to our lives, ways that we can learn from this text. And unlike this morning, I don't think you're going to have to gird up the ones of your mind too much tonight. It's going to be pretty simple and pretty straightforward. And so uh, just follow with me as we just simply make our way through the text. The first thing that you'll notice in verses 15 and 16 is that they are basically the same as verses 3 and 4 of chapter 24. So the introduction to the fourth oracle is basically the same as the introduction to the third oracle. I would remind you that it's interesting here that Balaam identifies himself as the oracle of the man whose eye is opened. As I said to you last time when I preached on the third oracle, previously, before God had opened Balaam's eyes to perceive true spiritual realities, before the Spirit of God came upon him to speak blessing over the people of Israel, even though Balaam was called a seer, even though Balaam was an intermediary between this realm and the spirit realm, really and truly he was blind as a bat concerning true religion. Because we remember the whole donkey narrative, right? Where basically the angel of the Lord is standing in the path, and even the donkey sees, but Balaam, the seer, can't see. And, and I think that this, that strange little story in this overarching Balaam narrative is intended to show us just how blind Balaam actually was to true spiritual realities prior to these four occasions in which God temporarily gave him insight into real spiritual things such that he spoke the very words that God wanted him to speak true words over the people of Israel. So if Balaam's eye is open here in this passage, I would remind you, it's not because of anything intrinsic in Balaam. It's because here in this occasion, God is graciously opening up Balaam's eyes such that he speaks truth and blessing over the people of Israel. And the, the fourth oracle differs from the first three oracles in that there's nothing really about the present. What Balaam does in the fourth oracle is he actually speaks about Israel's future. And though Balaam has spoken about Israel's future before, there was always something of Israel's present 
in the previous three oracles. So though he said in the third one that one day Israel will have a king higher than Agag, whose kingdom shall be exalted, at the same time, there was this recognition that how lovely are your tents presently, O Jacob. Right? Whereas in the fourth oracle, there's nothing about the present. Everything is future-looking. And what Balaam sees is a figure who will emerge and arise out of Israel who will crush the forehead, break down, dispossess his enemies and exercise dominion. Now, you don't have to gird up the loins of your mind too much to know who we're talking about here, I think. Right? This is clearly a prophecy of the Lord Jesus. What we have in, in this fourth oracle is specifically a prediction of a ruler who would, who would rise out of Israel, who would crush the forehead of Moab, break down all the sons of Sheth, dispossess Edom, Seir is the same thing, and then destroy the survivors of cities, so maybe a few other Canaanite tribes. But, but what we have here, even though there may be somewhere between maybe four to ten nations specifically mentioned or alluded to in this section. It's not as if this is going to be a regional ruler who will defeat Moab and Seir and some of these remaining Canaanites. What we have here is this picture that all the enemies of Israel will be overcome and that this ruler will rule over them all. I see him, but not now, he says in verse 17. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. Some say a star shall uh, come to Jacob. Uh, and some commentators take that as the star which guided the wise men from the east to the scepter which shall arise out of Israel. I think there are pretty good arguments against that. I think that the stars to be identified as the same person who is also called a scepter. So this person who is coming is going to be a star and a scepter. Typically we don't talk about our rulers as stars, certainly not stars in the sky. Nowadays that word has morphed to mean celebrities, but that's not the sense of it here. It's not a star like a celebrity, it's like a star in the sky. And typically we don't these days talk about our rulers as stars. But apparently in the ancient Near East it was relatively common. Uh, in any case, we see in Revelation 22 and verse 16 that Jesus refers to himself as the bright morning star. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David the bright morning star. So I think the imagery here is, is of an illustrious, luminous, glorious being who is exalted in the heavens. And some, something of that language, I think, is conveyed in this imagery of the star. And then the scepter is obvious. Personifying someone as a scepter. He is a scepter. Is certainly, obviously, a reference to kingly power and authority. So there is a star, there is a scepter coming. Should we expect him in the next generation at this time when Balaam speaks this oracle? 
No. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. So this is not a prophecy of the near future of Israel. So this is not Moses passing off authority to Joshua, who becomes the star on the scepter. Nor, even as we see biblical history unfolding, nor is this even a reference to Saul, the first king of Israel. Nor a reference to David, who comes after him. Nor a reference to Solomon. We see in in the, the reign of David and Solomon some victory, some overcoming of enemies, some dispossession of enemies. And yet, these nations, which are... Mentioned here, Moab, Sheth, Edom, these continue to exist even after the reigns of David and Solomon. So there is no ultimate conquest or victory. I mean, we read today, it just so happened by chance that we read today in our Old Testament reading about David actually being on the run and entrusting his parents to the care of the king of Moab. So he's leaning on the king of Moab, and the king of Moab is actually taking care of him in the Old Testament reading that we read tonight. So, I mean, even David, who is known as Israel's greatest military king and conqueror prior to the coming of Christ Jesus, still doesn't really fit this description. So it's it's not really tenable to say that what... Balaam perceives here is the coming of David, or the coming of simply the kingship to Israel, but a specific ruler who is coming afar off, who brings ultimate victory over all of Israel's enemies. Of course, as I said, this is fulfilled in Christ Jesus. What we see in the Balaam narrative is God keeping the, those unconditional aspects of the promises that He made to Abram, that He would make a nation of him, and that He would bless those who bless him, and that He would curse those who curse him, that He would make sure that there is a seed through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so it is impossible for Balak, the king of Moab, to hire this pagan shaman and reverse what God has already decreed and reverse what God has already promised to Abraham. And we, we recognize that part of what God has promised to Abraham is this kingly descendant. And so all that is really happening here is this reiterated, is that the plan and purpose of God is reiterated. To take one of Abraham's descendants, make him a king, set him on his throne. As we sang in Psalm 2, that promise is reiterated later. As we read throughout the Old Testament in its entirety, that promise is reiterated over and over again. And then as we just sang in uh, hymns of grace, what child is this? Who who is this one? This, This is Christ the King. This, and Christ is just the, the same equivalent word for Messiah. This is the promised king. This is the promised Messiah. And so we see God promising this king, promising this king. And finally, what child is this? This is Messiah the king. So that's what's going on in this passage. It's a pretty straightforward messianic prophecy of a king. Two main observations. 
two main observations which will lead directly to applications to our lives. First is, it is possible to know about God without a right relationship to Him. And we see this in verses 15 and 16 where Balaam rightly calls himself the man whose eye is opened. He's not wrong. When he speaks this of himself, he does see the Messiah. When he speaks this, he has had his eye opened by the Holy Spirit to perceive spiritual things. Balaam says that he knows the knowledge of the Most High. Again, this is a true statement. We can't say, well, Balaam was wrong. He thought he knew, but he didn't know. No, he, he did know. He's telling the truth here about what's going to happen. John Gill says, Balaam was admitted to much nearness to God and to converse with Him, of which he boasted. <laughs> but this was not for his own sake, nor as a mark of friendship to Him, but for the sake of the people of Israel. In other words, God admitted Balaam to a, a certain nearness to him. And God deigned to converse with Balaam, to open his eye and to give him knowledge of the Most High. But this wasn't for Balaam's sake. Nor was this a mark or a token of friendship between God and Balaam. But God admitted Balaam to nearness to him and to converse with him for the sake of the people of Israel, such that Balaam would prop properly perceive God's intent to bless and that he would speak blessing instead of speaking cursing over the people of Israel in order that he would make God's gracious purposes known to Balak, the unbelieving king, so that even the nations around would understand Yahweh is with these people. And since Yahweh intends to bless them, no one can curse them. Matthew Henry says, A man may be full of the knowledge of God, yet utterly destitute of the grace of God. This is what was happening here in this Balaam narrative. Balaam saw very, very clearly true spiritual things. He had his eye opened. He had knowledge of the Most High, but he was utterly destitute of the grace of God. If we turn just one chapter over, which we'll, God willing, we'll cover next week, this narrative. It says here in chapter 25 and verse 1, While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. Now over in Numbers 31 and verse 16, we read this. Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. So what happens is that in Numbers 24 and verse 25, when it says Balaam rose and went back to his place and Balak also went his way, what happens is that this was not the end of Balaam's involvement in schemes to destroy the people of Israel. Balak had, Balak, pardon me, Balaam had hoped that maybe 
Yahweh would change his mind and at some point he might actually be able to curse the people of Israel. We know that from what we read in 2 Peter 2.15 that Balaam loved gain from wrongdoing. This is at least part of what Balaam's error is, which is alluded to at many places in the New Testament. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. So it seems that when Balak came, Balaam went and consulted Yahweh, hoping that Yahweh would say, yeah, go ahead, curse them, collect the money, collect the reward. Well, Yahweh didn't say that. So Balaam can't overrule Yahweh. He goes back and reports to Balak, sorry, I can't do it. But then Balak comes again and asks again. And Balaam doesn't say, no, I already answered you guys. Balaam says, well, let me go ask Yahweh again. Right? And he goes back and he does this a few times before he finally realizes, no, I'm not going to be able to collect on the reward this way. But when Balaam and Balak part at the end of 24, what we can infer is that Balaam was scheming. Alright, I haven't been able to collect on the reward here because Yahweh did not allow me to curse the people of Israel. What scheme can I devise to harm the people of Israel and be able to get some reward from Balak? Numbers 31.16 tells us that it was on Balaam's advice that the women of Moab seduced the uh, men of Israel and caused them to whore against God and bow down to the gods of Moab to Baal of Peor. Eventually Balaam was killed and we may infer that this was not simply an unfortunate accident and that he was collateral damage. A righteous, a righteous man killed in the uh, heat of battle, but rather from the, from the way the rest of Scripture talks about it, we may infer that this was a judicial providence in which God caused the wicked Balaam to fall with the rest of the wicked Canaanites and did not preserve his life the way that he preserved, say, for example, Rahab much later on, who's, well, actually not that much later on, who's knowledge of God actually led her to take refuge under the wings of the God of Israel. So, it is possible to know about God without a right relationship to Him. Sometimes you hear people say things like, if you get your doctrine right, the rest will take care of itself. You hear people say things like, right beliefs Right beliefs lead to right actions. Right beliefs lead to holiness of life. And when, for example, uh, let's say a Pentecostal pastor sins in an egregious way, people say, well, see, if he understood doctrine better, then he wouldn't have fallen. Right? You see this kind of line of argumentation come up from time to time in conversation. Listen, it is possible to know about God, to have knowledge of the Most High, to have your eye opened to correctly perceive spiritual things without having a right relationship 
with God. We have seen men who are as straight as an arrow in terms of orthodoxy sin egregiously. We've seen men who are straight as an arrow in terms of orthodoxy not just sin egregiously in an instance but turn away altogether from the Christian faith. I would say that in some sense the reformed are, are perhaps not less susceptible to this danger of knowing about God without a right relationship to Him, but perhaps more susceptible to knowing about God without a right relationship to Him. For this reason, that our tradition emphasizes correct doctrine so much. There are, there are other brands in, in denominations and traditions within the Christian faith which, which don't emphasize truth and doctrine to the same degree. All right, now everybody obviously is going to say, yeah, you have to have great beliefs. But what I mean is, we, we know there are some traditions which emphasize perhaps an experience in the gathered worship of the saints more so than they emphasize right doctrine. And you, and you go and, and what's really focused on is a certain kind of atmosphere and environment and feeling on a Sunday morning as opposed to, say, the, the careful exposition of God's Word. We know there are other traditions, other denominations within Christianity that prioritize certain ethical codes over doctrine. So it's not so much a focus on what is the truth about this issue or that issue or the doctrine about this issue or that issue or the exposition of this issue or that issue. But there's certain ways that people are expected to live. And there's this real emphasis on ethics, right? What I think that in the Reformed tradition, rightly, we, we understand that doctrine is important, that the exposition of the word is, is key and central and it's by this means that God builds up his people and so on and so forth. But I think, I think that there is a perhaps peculiar danger to reducing Christian maturity simply to right doctrines and right beliefs, which I think in a tradition which prioritizes right beliefs and right doctrines and good exposition and so on and so forth, perhaps we need to be especially careful to mitigate against. Suffice it to say that we're at least not immune in the Reformed world to having correct knowledge about God without a right relationship with Him. So let he who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall. That's the first main observation. The second main observation is this. It is possible to see the trajectory of the future and not make adjustments to the way you live in the present Accordingly, this is in verses 17 to 19. Look, Balaam knows what's going on in the future. Who's going to win, Israel or Moab? Israel, right? Who's who's going to succeed, Israel? And remember, he has knowledge of the Most High, so he knows that that Israel is going to succeed, not just. Perchance, 
but because of Yahweh's blessing. That Yahweh is a God above Baal of Peor. And that because Yahweh is a God above Baal of Peor, Yahweh is going to see to it that the people of Israel thrive and that there is a king who arises in faithfulness to what God had promised, who conquers all of Israel's enemies and so on and so forth. He understands clearly. He sees here the trajectory of what is going to happen. And he literally goes straight from this to plotting how to bring the Israelites to ruin and get money from Bala, the king of Moab. Right? He, knows, he knows how things play out and how things are going to end. But he doesn't make the adjustment accordingly that that knowledge calls for. Alright, look. We can see this dynamic in so many ways. Think, for example, of the young dating couple. And everybody warns her, look, that boy is bad news. He's no good for you. Alright, there's red flags all over the place. And she says, no, no. He's Prince Charming. He's perfect. <laughs> look. Think about, for example, the drug addict, right? Like, what makes you try meth? You know, like you, like you, you've seen what meth does to people. You like you think that it will turn out well for you. So you're just with some people, and someone says, "Hey, try this," and you think it'll probably end well, <laughs> right? No, it, it it doesn't. We see this, I just pick a couple of things to just illustrate this dynamic. There is this folly to sin where there, there has to be some level of cognitive understanding that the trajectory of this, whatever this may be, the trajectory of X is not good. It's not going to end well. But listen, you just want what you want. You don't care about what may happen in the future. What you care about is right now. Alright, so I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. Many men pay no mind to our proclamation of the eventual victory of Christ, which is really tantamount to judgment upon his enemies. And they console themselves, and they continue on their present course because of these three words, but not now, but not near. Right? We remember the words of the scoffers in 2 Peter chapter 3. Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Simply because Jesus is not visible in the sky right now. But not now. But not near. Men continue on this foolish course. They recognize 
they're compelled to recognize, at least when they've encountered the, the scriptures and the true and the right proclamation, the truth of what God says in His Word. And yet they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They just want what they want. And so though the, though the trajectory has been made clear to them, though there is a, a sense in which they may see Him, they rest on these words, but not now. But not near. And this is the heart dynamic. Well, He's not, he's not near. Well, it's not happening right now. The judgment's not today. He's not near. Where is He? I look in the sky, I don't see Him. Where's the promise of His coming? Everything continues the way it has ever since our fathers fell asleep. Look, what is it today? May 28th? It's the same as May 27th. Same as May 26th. Where's Jesus? Not near. When's He coming back? Not now. And so though there is this perception that many men have when the, the light of the gospel shines upon them, so to speak, in the, in the objective way. I'm not saying that it's penetrated their hearts, but in the way that Balaam got cognitive understanding of what was about to happen, and yet did not adjust his course. So there is a sense that many men get cognitive understanding about what is going to happen concerning Jesus and His return and the end of all things and the fate of their souls and so on and so forth. But like Balaam, they, they see Him not near and not now and they just continue their wrongdoing. And they enjoy living in the present and getting what they can out of this life. Even though they know Moab is a sinking ship, right now, Moab is waving dollar bills. And they just can't resist. It is possible to see the trajectory of the future and not adjust accordingly. So the two observations, it's possible to know about God without a right relationship to Him. It's possible to see the trajectory of the future and not adjust the present accordingly. We should be cautious and careful, therefore, about knowledge which does not result in application to our lives. We should be careful about knowledge which does not result in an invisible, an invisible shift inwardly in both values and allegiances at the heart level, and which does not result in quantifiable, observable behavior changes. No one can see what happens in your heart, but the knowledge we get should change our heart. We can see what happens with your behavior, right? And it's not merely behavior change, but also heart change that is required. We need to take the knowledge of God and, and make application to our hearts and make application to, say, our hands, so to speak, and our feet and our mouths and the things we do the places we go, the words we say, and so on and so forth. Be careful of that knowledge which does not result in application to our lives. The problem is not the knowledge. The problem is the failure to apply it properly.
Let us therefore recognize the truth about Christ and reform our hearts and our minds accordingly, shifting our confidence, our faith to Jesus in the first place, resolving to walk with Him day by day until whether we are called home prior to the end of all things or until Christ cracks the sky, let us recognize that there is a star which is coming out of Jacob and a scepter which shall arise out of Israel, namely the Lord Jesus, and adjust our lives accordingly and be sure that we not only know Him, but have a right relationship with Him.